For those of you that are visiting with us today, we are presently going through the Gospel of John. I think we've been in it around 42 weeks so far, and we're nearly getting there. It's, it's near. I can feel the end. And what a wonderful book it has been to exposit and go through together and enjoy for the glory of the Lord. I've creatively called this message Deep and Irrevocable Joy, Part 2. It took me a long time. To, to master that this week. And for those of you that are visiting, this is a second part to a particular message on deep and irrevocable joy I gave last week, and I'll try my best by way of introduction as we get into it to bring you all into speed so we're all on the same page. But let's read together verse 16, uh, sorry, chapter 16 from verse 16 through to the end of verse 22. This is Jesus communicating with his disciples the night before he dies. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray. Our Father, to gather around your word, is a scandalous grace that we get to spend time and commune with you and we get to hear your voice. Lord, I'm just a preacher. I can affect no one's hearts. But you, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, as as I preach, can change hearts in a moment and we attribute all change and all glory then to you. And Lord, I pray would you do that today. As we encounter your word, would we encounter you, would each of us, Know afresh your personal and particular and passionate love for us. And would we go about then in our lives keeping the main thing, the main thing. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Last week, the big idea and the one big point was simple. It was that the gospel truly is an an incredible source of deep, and irrevocable joy. That's all we taught all the way through, that the gospel truly is an incredible source of deep and irrevocable joy. And we got that in particular from verses 20 through 22. See, the disciples are talking amongst themselves, you know, Jesus, what did you mean? What was your point, Savior, when you're saying, you know, in a little while we won't see you, but then in a little while longer we'll see you again? What are you on about? And he explains to them, I'll tell you what I'm on about. Ultimately, I'm on about the time in a few days' time when I'm going to die in your place. Tomorrow, when I die in your place, you will see me no more. But then in a little while, three days later, you will see me again. 
He's talking about his death and resurrection and he likens that and says to them, you know, you're going to experience sorrow, but that sorrow will turn into joy. And he likens that bravely to a woman giving birth and explains that just like a woman giving birth, as she gives birth, that's great sorrow, it's pain, it's anguish. But then after a number of hours, great joy comes. And the sorrow is almost forgotten because you're so excited to have this child. And so he sits his disciples down and explains to them, that's what it's going to be like for you. In a little while, you will see me no more. But in a little while longer, you will see me again. And he goes on to tell them that in verse 22, that that will be a joy that no one will take from them. What is that joy? Well, ultimately, it is a joy in the gospel. It is a joy in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a joy in what he has done for them. A joy that will never, ever be taken away from them. And so we spent time last week looking at how the gospel brings then such deep and irrevocable joy. How did it actually do that? And we saw that the gospel points us beyond our works to grace. The temptation and tendency of each one of us is to legalism, right? We all want to smuggle in our works, Sinclair Ferguson says. We all don't do it by humanistic beings. We all try and smuggle in our works into our salvation. And yet the gospel reminds us that it's got nothing to do with your works and everything to do with his work. It has nothing to do with your behavior. It has to do with the behavior of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he died at Calvary in your place. And we saw our temptation towards legalism as we looked at the plate spinner. Do you remember that? This guy who's spinning plates, and he forgets that these aren't ways of earning God's grace. They're ways of experiencing God's grace, but not earning God's grace. And so in light of eternity, in light of Calvary, we can let all the plates smash, because we're acceptable before the Lord through Jesus Christ and him alone. The gospel teaches us that. And if we understand it and grasp it, and we put put to death legalism, what we receive is what? Joy. Because you're aware. This is scandalous grace. This is unbelievable. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Alone. It's incredible. We also saw how the gospel points us beyond our feelings to truth. That temptation and tendency to view our view of God and how we perceive he might feel about us, depending on how we feel about our circumstances. The problem is our circumstances change, right? So sometimes we can feel that God must really love us, and other times we can feel that he probably doesn't, depending upon our circumstances. And yet the gospel points us beyond those things. It points us beyond our subjectivism to Calvary, to the place that really does determine how he feels about you. Placarded above the Saviour was Jesus, King of the Jews. But I submit to you, behind that was simply these words, I did this for you. That's how he feels about you. It isn't determined by how we feel about our circumstances. It's determined about the Calvary experience that he died in our place for. And we saw how the gospel points us beyond our sin to Calvary. The temptation to carry 300 pounds of sinful luggage with us. And even though we've been to the cross many times and asked for forgiveness, we still take it with us all the time. And we saw how by pointing to the gospel there is joy because it helps us to realize I'm saved and I'm forgiven. Past, present and future, it's been removed as far as the east is from the west and that does indeed cultivate joy. The gospel is powerful and the gospel brings deep and irrevocable joy. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us if we had time to study today. I mean, we're going to do Acts as a local church in a few months. But it shouldn't surprise us to discover that if we could just quickly go through it, what we'd find is from this point on, through the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these disciples work hard to keep the main thing the main thing. These disciples, knowing the power that it brings, the deep and irrevocable joy that it brings to people, work it into their own lives and do indeed work hard to preach Christ and Him crucified to everybody they encounter. And so every church they are planting is indeed a gospel-centered church. They're preaching the gospel knowing that it's the power of God for the salvation to all who believe. And then even when they are gathering together as a church, they continue to preach the gospel and help people see how it affects their lives because it will cultivate joy. As people are putting to death legalism, as people are putting to death subjectivism, as people are putting to death condemnation, it will cultivate in joy. The joy that the Savior said would never be taken away. The Apostle Paul, I think, did this probably better than anyone ever lived. To the Corinthian church, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. And then in 2 Corinthians, he reminds us that I resolved to know nothing then among you except Christ and him crucified. To Paul, the gospel was everything. His whole life was given to preaching the gospel and building it into his churches and building it into the people that he had the privilege to preach to. He set up the Ephesian church, a church that Paul planted and then cared for and spent three long years seeking to build the gospel into them. He's left almost five minutes. And as he's leaving, he writes to them the book of Ephesians and he spends three chapters talking to them again about the gospel. Listen, I don't want you to forget. Remember who you were. Remember who you are. Remember what changed that. The grace of God. Jesus. Faith in Jesus alone. And then to Timothy, his child in the faith, as Paul knows and understands that his life is indeed going to come to an end. He says to Timothy, his child in the faith, Timothy, of this gospel I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. And then he goes on to say, so Timothy, guard the good deposit. What's the good deposit? It's the gospel. Timothy, as I now pass the baton of church ministry to you, Timothy, I want you to understand. Timothy, keep the main thing the main thing. Timothy, guard the good deposit. Timothy, do not fumble the gospel. Do not change the gospel, but preach the gospel. And as I now leave the pulpit, I want you to stand at the pulpit and I want you to tell these churches everything that I've been telling them for years, namely the gospel. Because the gospel will change lives, Timothy. Timothy, the the gospel will help people guard against legalism. Timothy, the gospel will help guard people from subjectivism. Timothy, the gospel as you preach it will release people from condemnation. Timothy, the gospel will provide believers deep and irrevocable joy. So, So guard the good deposit. Don't move on from the gospel. Timothy, there's many things you've got to teach them. But keep first things first. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the gospel the main thing. My friends, that's why we keep the gospel the main thing too. As I preach to you, and I trust by God's grace anybody else that preaches to you from this pulpit, one day, if God willing, he allows me to live long, 
and I retire in this church, I want to find a Timothy. And I will be saying to that young man, guard the good deposit. Keep the main thing the main thing. Never move on from the gospel. But continue to take sovereign grace, church, deeper into the gospel. But don't move off it. Because it sources people with deep and irrevocable joy. The question that I want to answer today then, having looked at how that works last week, the question I want to answer today is how then do we keep the main thing the main thing? Not primarily as a local church, but primarily as individuals. If the gospel is such a source of deep and irrevocable joy, how do we as a congregation, how do we individually ensure that we then keep the main thing the main thing? How do we actually do that? Understanding that daily reminding myself of the gospel is a great thing. Understanding that it will help me to put to death condemnation and legalism and subjectivism. It's a great thing. But how do you do it? What does that actually look like in our lives? And that's what I really want to preach on today. Everything I've learned is always from other people. As you know, as a local church, I do not have original thoughts. I had one once and then I woke up. It was a dream. I do not have original thoughts in my life. I I like to hang around usually with dead people like Spurgeon and Tozer and Stott. I think they have great wisdom for the church and great wisdom that, that, that I can glean, that people can glean and then pass on. There's also a couple of guys that aren't dead yet in C.J. Mahaney and Pete Greasley, who I'm also very grateful for when it comes to this topic. So there are 12 things I want to give you today. Now, don't panic. They're very short. I'm not going to be here all day. But they are 12 recommendations. And please understand this, because if you don't understand this, we're going to be in trouble. They're recommendations of how we can apply this over our lifetime. Please do not leave this thinking, He's given me 12 things I've got to do by dinner. You know, that is, that is not the way this goes. These are recommendations for how to keep the gospel the main thing for our lives, which by the end, I'll just be saying to you, listen, pick one or two. Start to apply them. Let us begin then by being pastored by Mr. Stott. He says the following. He says, The cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. Isn't that wonderful? The cross by very nature, the gospel, Christ and him crucified, is a blazing fire. And yet we have to get close enough to it to allow its sparks to fall on us. And so all 12 recommendations really answer the question then, how do I get close enough to it to ensure that the sparks of the gospel fall on my life? So number one, Number one, practice strategic memorization of Scripture. Practice strategic memorization of Scripture. God instructs us in the Psalms to store up his word in our hearts, to literally tuck his promises in our hearts so that no matter what our circumstance is, what our temptation is and what our tendency is, we can bring these truths that are stored in our hearts out so that we can allow the word of God and the promises that he has given us to strengthen us. Now, Notice the word strategic memorization of Scripture rather than just memorization of Scripture. Because I've met many people that memorize Scripture and they memorize random Scriptures. And you ask them, what does that mean? And they, I have no idea, but I've memorized it. Okay, well, that's very nice. What I'm talking about is memorization, ultimately, of the gospel. So that there are things in our hearts so that as we're tempted towards legalism or subjectivism, we can bring these truths out and stand on them as individuals that will cultivate joy. Here's some ideas of 
some of them that you could pick. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians 15, verse 21. If you want to write these down, you can, but at the same time, I am going to put my notes online for you because there's a lot of things to be said. Galatians 2, verse 21. Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6. And then there are numerous, numerous passages in Romans that it would be well worth committing to memory. So Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. And Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. And as you memorize these, here's what you can anticipate. The sparks of the gospel, the sparks of the cross will begin to fall on you. And you will be in awe of the Lord. And joy will be your thing. As you realize, this is incredible. This is true. And that truth is being burned into our hearts. Number two, read and reflect upon the gospels. All Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I want to recommend to you, you read and reflect upon them. I can say it, but I can't say it any better than J.C. Ryle. He writes as follows. It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all scripture is profitable, and it is wise not to exalt one part of the Bible at expense of another. But I do think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity, but it is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king, but it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and behold his beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ himself. And the Gospels, this is where they fit in, The Gospels were written to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Spirit has told us the story of his life and death, his sayings and his doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Savior. His ways, his manners, his feelings, his wisdom, his grace, his patience, his love, his power are graciously enfolded to us by four different witnesses. Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. The Gospels were written to make us familiar with Christ, and therefore I wish us to study the Gospels. Surely we cannot know this Christ too well. Oh, how true that is. Surely there is not a word, nor a deed, nor a day, nor a step, nor a thought and the record of his life which ought not to be precious to us we should labor to be familiar with every line that is written about jesus my friends i cannot improve on that i think he's right the gospels were written to help us be acquainted with christ and surely there should not be a line written about jesus that we don't want to work hard to encounter and understand so that we may marvel at the Saviour all the more.
And so I want to encourage you then, if you want to allow the gospel-saturated life to, to live in your life, get near the gospels. And get near the gospels often. Walk with Jesus. And notice in all four gospels, very importantly and very specifically, in all four accounts, when you get near Calvary, the speed of the gospel slows down. It's deliberate. Because it is as we encounter those parts in particular, we should be walking through them slowly so that we understand God's personal and passionate and particular love for us and so that we allow the sparks of the cross to fall on our lives as we marvel at what he's truly done. Number three, study the seven cries of Calvary. Jesus said some incredible things in his life. But seven things that he said, seven lines, took place at Calvary and they are well worthy of our attention and well worthy of our study. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I tell you the truth. This day you will be with me in paradise. Dear woman, he says to his mum, Dear woman, this is your son. And as he looks at John, his beloved disciple, he says, and John, here is your mother. Such intimate, compassionate care. Folks, when you, when you study the cries of Calvary, I submit to you, you're on holy ground. There are things taking place in the heavenly realms and in the earthly realms that I think we encounter as we walk slowly through the cries of Calvary. Particularly this one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, just, just allow the sparks to fall on you. All that he went through for you. I am thirsty. It is finished. Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. One of the best books I've ever read on this topic are The Cries from the Cross by Erwin Lutzer. It's a fantastic small book that just takes you through each of the cries. Folks, I want to encourage you, get near to these cries. If you truly want to receive and understand delight and deep and irrevocable joy, spend time on these moments and do not move on until they do the work in your life because they will. Number four, study the effects of Calvary. And so, substitution, propitiation, justification, redemption, reconciliation, salvation and adoption. All these things. You know, I I encountered too many Christians and I understand it because I was indeed one of them for many, many years of my life that you say to them about certain words and they have no idea what you're on about. And even though they've been a Christian many years, They've never once thought, I'm going to go on Wikipedia for three minutes and discern what exactly that means. They do it for other things. So holiday parks, oh my gosh, let's go to Wikipedia. But, but not like these important words. And it's so important. And I really got convicted about this a number of years ago when I was living in Newport, South Wales. And this 15-year-old boy, Mormon, knocked on my door. And you think, oh, he's only 15, bless him. I'll try and help him to Jesus. And so he knocks on the door and he's telling me about his faith. And I'm like, well... Yeah, it's interesting, but I just want to tell you a few things. And he is shooting me back. 
He's taking me to the Greek and everything. This dude is, he, he is on his stuff. And I'm like, you're meant to be 15. And so he, he's starting to communicate to me about where he stands. And I'm arguing back with him. And he is giving it large. He was 15. What struck me is this boy has studied hard. This boy knows his stuff. And although I think him incorrect, he is at least prepared to stand on truth. He's prepared to do the hard work so that he can defend his faith, even to me, as I'm beginning to grill him on certain questions. And it impressed me. And at that point in my life, I didn't know very much at all. So I bought Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine, and I thought, I've got to find out about the answer to these things in case this kid comes back for a start. I was just aware, I don't know anything. And then we can wonder at different points in our lives, why am I not amazed by grace like that person is? Well, here's one reason often. We don't understand the gospel like they understand it because we haven't done any work in it like they've done a work in it. See, understanding the gospel means growing in the gospel. And a growing in understanding, I submit to you, will bring about a growing in joy. Because the more you pause and realize what substitution is, when you actually take the time, half an hour, on what propitiation is, and you slowly work that through, you'll be amazed. Because it's incredible. So don't be put off by big words in your Bible, particularly young people. Don't be put off by big words. Do the hard work. Do the work. And find and mind the depths of these things. So Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem, I would fully recommend it. Also, The Essential Truths of the Christian Life by R.C. Sproul. An, an outstanding book that it would be well worth taking the time to get to, get to grips over. And, and just over the next year, start to spend time in these things so that you'll start to be dazzled with, these are the effects of the gospel. This is what he's done for me. Number five, read a new book on the cross every year. Each and every year, read a new book on the cross. Now, some of you may be thinking, I've never read a book on the cross. Okay, well, let's start. Here's a few suggestions. The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Outstanding book. And I want you to, by God's grace, build libraries. That's why I constantly say to you, there is no budget that takes place in the bookshop. We don't just want to buy books. We want to build a library in our homes so there are things in our homes that we can go to to allow the sparks of the cross to fall on us. So John Stott is an excellent example of that in The Cross of Christ. The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges, outstanding book, and particularly helps you if you are prone, like I can be, to legalism. He unpacks that at great length. The Atonement by Leon Morris, absolutely classic book. And The Power of the Cross of Christ by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is my historical hero. Here's my recommendation. Anything that says C.H. Spurgeon on it, buy it. Buy it and, and read it. And spend time in it and you will like it. It was said of Spurgeon that no matter where he began, he always took a shortcut to the cross. So anything that I recommend by Spurgeon, you are in safe hands. The gospel will be preached. The cross will be seen. You will have the sparks of the cross fall on you. And by God's grace, I want to be like him too. I want to ensure that you hear regularly about the cross. And no matter what text we are in, we see Jesus. That's how he preached. Would we all preach? that way. So, read a new book on the cross every year. Number six, reread a good book on the cross every year. 
Just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. So discern good books. I will give you a clue. They're usually written by dead people. Okay, that that's, tends to be the way it goes. New stuff can be good. I've seen some books that you think, is that a book or a pamphlet? It is so short. And you think, I'm not sure this book will be around in 100 years. But there are other good books that have already been around for several hundred years. Get them. And start to spend time in them. Any books that you haven't encountered that you think, you know what, I always feel the joy of the Lord when I read that book. Well, there's a clue. Keep reading it every year. Spend some time in that book. Number seven, whatever verse in the Bible you're reading or studying, keep your eyes peeled for Christ. Whatever, and I mean whatever verse, whatever verse in the Bible you're reading or studying, keep your eyes peeled for Jesus. Brian Chappell says it this way wonderfully. He says, in its context... Every passage possesses one or more of four redemptive foci. Every text is either predictive of the work of Christ, preparatory for the work of Christ, reflective of the work of Christ, and or resultant of the work of Christ. But everything, make no mistake, points us in some way to the work of Christ. And folks, I want to encourage you then Whatever verse in the Bible you're reading or studying, ask yourself then, what is the relationship between this verse and Christ? And I submit to you, that will revolutionize many of the ways we tend to study the Bible. And it certainly revolutionized the way I study the Bible. I grew up thinking that the Old Testament was for kids' stories in Sunday school. And then we hear a lot about the New Testament. And that's what I thought it was. So the Old Testament says, oh, it's kids' stories. It's really nice. And then the New Testament, oh, that's where it's at. We'll keep preaching that because it's really cool. But the truth is the Bible is all one storybook all the way through. And so every page whispers the name of Christ. And so all the way from the beginning through creation, we see Jesus at work creating. We see then in Genesis, the fall of mankind. In Genesis 3.15, we see then God ultimately demanding and and prophesying over the serpent that one day one will come, and although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And then the hunt is on from Genesis 3.15 onwards for who's the serpent crusher going to be? Who is this one going to be who is going to kill Satan, who is going to remove his power, and is going to allow believers somehow to go back into the garden? And then the storyline unfolds. And you go through all different people and you think, oh, maybe it's them. And you realize, no, it's not them. They kill people. That isn't going to work out. And you keep going through different names, different people. But along the way, there are numerous, numerous pointers to Jesus. And so we see Rahab with the scarlet cord. We think, how random. Why did it have to be a scarlet cord? Well, because it's a pointer in some way to the Passover, which in turn is a pointer to Jesus Christ and what he achieved. Abraham and Isaac, and he walks three days out onto a hill, and you think, that's a long time. Until you find out that many believe, scholars believe, that, that that became Mount Moriah, and Mount Moriah became the home of King Solomon's temple, and the home of that temple became Calvary. Think that, wow, you see that hundreds of years before Jesus? Yes, yes, it screams of Jesus. There are numerous places. There's this random bit in Leviticus that just says, cursed is the one that hangs on a tree. And then just carries on. And you think, what the heck? What's that got to do with anything? I'll tell you what it's got to do with something. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, hundreds of years before the Romans even arrived and thought of a cross, 
It's classed as a curse way back in Leviticus. Wow, that's amazing. The Old Testament then is filled with pointers towards Jesus Christ. The gospel all point at Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, the final prophet, saying, behold the Lamb of God. That's the last time you see a prophecy that's pointed towards Jesus. Then it is Jesus, and then we have the letters pointing us back to Jesus and his work, and then we have Revelation, the glories of the returning of the King, and what it would be like as we see him. This whole book is about Jesus. And so, when you study it, And when you spend time in it, wherever you are, whatever verse you're looking at, realize that you need to find Jesus. And you will. Where does it fit in light of the gospel? Excellent book on this that changed my life is God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. It's a fantastic book of biblical theology and how the storyline of the Bible actually works. Another one is The Gospel and the Kingdom by Graham Goldsworthy. An outstanding book. Okay, number eight. Study the holiness of God and the doctrine of sin. Study the holiness of God and the doctrine of sin. Now understand, studying the holiness of God and the doctrine of sin is is preparatory for the gospel. It's in preparation for the gospel. But if we don't fully understand how holy God is and how sinful we really are, we will never be amazed by grace. The cross will never dazzle us. We will never be truly affected until we really realize who God is and in reality, who I am. You see, here's the point I want to make. As a church and as individuals, you will never be truly passionate about something that you take for granted. You never will. And we're like it in all parts of life. I grew up in Spalding in Lincolnshire. And you always have to say Spalding in Lincolnshire because no one's ever heard of Spalding. And for you, you've never heard of Lincolnshire either. So Spalding, Lincolnshire, England. But I grew up there, and the reason why we have to say it all the time in those three is because there was nothing to do there. There was 18,000 people in the town. If you want to know what it looked like, um, if you watch like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, that's where I lived. Okay, so it was very much like that. And the only thing we had in our town was a swimming pool. And it was a really lame swimming pool as well. But if it's all you've got, that's what you do every Sunday afternoon. So every Sunday afternoon we would go swimming, and I have a brother and a sister. And I remember when I was about 10, um, and my brother was 7, we decided that we would go swimming and I liked to play a little game. And the game was called, How Long Can I Drown Andrew For? And so, so I like to proceed to play this in the afternoons on a Sunday. And here's the thing. If you had said to my brother, before that game began, Andrew, are you passionate about air? He would, he would what, what are you on about? Of, of course not. You know, air, it's always here. And oh, well, that's interesting. And then I begin to thrust him under the water, which for a big brother is a lot of fun. And occasionally you'd throw him under the water and you'd actually put your face in the water and you'd notice he's changing color and everything. This is great. He's going blue. Is he dead? No. Oh, leave him a bit longer. And so, but eventually he would come up and he would, be, he'd, he would be gasping for air. He was so desperate for air. If you had said to him there, Andrew, are you passionate about air? I think he'd be saying, oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. You're never passionate about something you take for granted. But often when it's removed, you then realize, oh, oh my goodness, this is incredible. I experienced it myself when, when I lived in America. Um, I had an appendicitis, and, and unfortunately it was a, I left it too long because I just thought it was a stomach cramp. It wasn't a stomach cramp. And my appendicitis actually exploded in me, which meant that it started to circulate all the bad stuff around my body. 
which was really bad news. It really was quite awkward. And so I remember just, just going through that different time, and, and I had the operation, the first one, and then I had a... Unfortunately, because I'd left it, I actually had some abscesses all, all throughout my body, so they needed to put tubes into my body so that they could drain them. And so I never forget, Emma was so cruel. I'm like, Emma, don't, don't take me back to that hospital because they're going to do things again. She's like, you've got to go. And you're like, you're sick. But she took me to the hospital. And I remember the night before having to go back in for the operation. They said to me, because your operation is early in the morning, it is paramount that you do not drink water after midnight. That's fine. I don't even like water. I don't care about water. So that's fine. I don't wait as long as like. So I remember it getting to about you know, quarter to 12. And I said, do you want a drink? Oh, no, I'm fine. I'm not even thirsty. About one minute to... I'm fine. I really don't feel the need for any water at all. As that clock struck midnight, something unique happened. I, I was desperate. I thought my mouth is dry. I, I've just got. I've got to drink something. And, and Emma's like, "I'm sorry, it's midnight." And you're like, "You're just a legalist. What are you?" Doing? And it, just, it was awful. It was all. And you wouldn't let me drink. And I'm just. So it was the longest night of my life. As I suddenly realised, I am so thirsty. And I had the operation. And I'm like drinking gallons of the stuff. I just took it for granted. But then I really wanted it. You will never be passionate about something you take for granted. And so it is with the gospel. If you take it for granted, it's no big deal to you. You will never be passionate about it. And I suggest to you that if you want to be passionate about the cross of Christ, do some preparatory work right here on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. See, I was never amazed by grace growing up, ever. I was grateful for it. It seemed okay. Never never amazed. But I never understood how holy God was, how far above me he was in every way, how completely other he was to me. And I never realized how bad I was, how sinful I really am, how cut off from God I really am in my sin. And it's as I studied those that the gospel became amazing. So study them. And particularly if you're an individual lacking in joy in the gospel, definitely study the holiness of God and the doctrine of sin then. Number nine, make gospel-centered songs the soundtracks of your life. You just like movies have soundtracks, our lives do as well, don't they? Our our lives do. We all have tunes or songs that evoke memories, do they not? And so you go on holiday and you always have a holiday song. And you, you always remember and you hear the song later on in years to come and you're like, oh, I remember the time when we heard that and we go along in the car. Because it evokes memories in us and we all have them. We all have these soundtracks in different ways that evoke memories, evoke feelings. Songs also evoke passions, don't they? I mean, if I'm in a bad mood and I don't really want to listen to anybody and talk to anybody, the song comes on my way and you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'll do it my way. And it evokes a passion in me which isn't helpful, but it evokes it. And it does so in all of our lives. Music is so powerful. It evokes passions in our lives and married with words, they become soundtracks of our lives. Well, I want to encourage you then Make gospel-centered songs the soundtracks of your life. I told you before that, that growing up, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, which I'm very grateful for. The challenge was we sang a lot of songs about how we wanted to be history makers. And so I grew up thinking, that's what I want to do. 
And then when different things happened in my life that were very difficult to walk through, that song didn't bear much traction in my life. That isn't a gospel-centered song. In reality, that is a me-centered song about what I want to do. What I'm talking about in a gospel-centered song is not a song about what I want to do. It's a song about what Jesus has done. What God in his grace has done. Allow these truths to be the soundtracks in your life. And so I want to encourage you, buy and listen to good gospel-centered songs. And there are numerous ones out there. Obviously, the ones I'm most familiar with are Sovereign Grace music songs. So I love Chris Tomlin. Really enjoy Hillsong. There are many writers that I just think, great, I will blast them for Jesus in my car. But in gospel-centered songs, I, I think I'm looking for a consistency. And sometimes when you buy an album, there's a few on there that you think, that's great. And then there's someone you think, that's not even true. But I really like track one, three, and five, so I'll buy the album. Sovereign Grace songs, I can guarantee to you, whatever the track, it's going to be gospel-centered. You're going to be bringing truth to bear on your lives. And if I'm going to make a gospel-centered song, the soundtrack of my life, I at least want it to be true, right? So make sure you're building truth into your life. So buy music and, and play them in your car. And Also, I want to encourage you this, right? Buy one of these bad boys. Buy a, a hymnal. Buy a hymn book. And then read it. Because these are amazing. You know, people don't write many songs like this anymore. Buy a hymn book and start to spend time in these words. Because I grew up on... I want to be a history maker. And you think, yeah, it's really nice. Now, get for this bad boy instead, okay? Bring this out. Get one of these for your quiet time. And then meditate on words like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever leads, lives and pleads for me. My name is graven in his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, it's condemnation. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. That's a song. They're the songs I want to be the soundtracks of my life. I want to awake in the morning and I want to spend time in that and then erupt in thanksgiving to the Lord because I'm amazed. This is incredible. That compels me. If you struggle to have crazy love for the Lord in your life, don't start with thinking of a hundred ways that you need to grow. Start with a hundred things that he's done for you. That will cultivate something in your life. It's incredible. Here's another one. I might just read these for the remainder of the morning. A debtor to mercy alone. A debtor to mercy alone 
of covenant mercy I sing. I come with your righteousness on. Do you realize that? It's the only way you can come. It's got nothing to do with how well you've done in a week. And the moment you think that, that's legalism. I come with your righteousness on. My humble offering to bring. The judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions. All the things we do. They're hidden from view. The work which your goodness began, the arm of your strength will complete. It's all by him. Your promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. The future are things that are now. No power below or above can make you your purposeful go or sever my soul from your love. My name on the palms of your hands Eternity will not erase. Impressed on your heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end will endure until I bow down at your throne forever and always secure. Forever and always secure. Forever and always secure. A debtor to mercy. Alone. Do you feel the sparks of the gospel falling on you as you encounter words like that. That's what happens. When we allow gospel-centered songs to affect our heart, we leave the scene amazed by grace, so affected, being aware that it's all about Him. And what that produces is joy, deep and irrevocable joy throughout the day as you realize, even though I blow it, even though I'm tempted towards subjectivism, even though I'm aware that I carry sin from my past, this is true. I'm indebted to mercy alone. And so upward I look and I marvel at the cross of Christ. So buy these songs, buy good hymnals, read them, listen to them. Number 10. Begin each day by giving thanks to God for the gospel and the effects of the gospel in your life. Begin each day by giving thanks to God for the gospel and the effects of the gospel in your life. Forgetting the gospel, I submit to you, is a daily temptation and tendency. We're not talking a weekly temptation. We're talking a daily temptation and tendency in our lives. We are all tempted to move on from the gospel. So I want to encourage you, begin each day then by reminding yourself of the gospel as you cry out to God in thanksgiving for all he's done. And make it a a daily habit. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Welshman, he once said that, he basically said that the reason why so many people are unhappy is because they spend far longer listening to themselves than they do talking to themselves. And his premise was, is people get up in the morning And they just have a thousand things that they know they've got to get done and they can hear the children shouting downstairs and they're arguing, I can't even face it yet. And and there's so many things where they've got to get through in the day. They're still carrying thoughts from the night before where they've said things that they probably shouldn't. And so the whole day onslaughts with a complete lack of joy. But if that individual stops listening to themselves and starts talking to themselves, I recommend talking to God in thanksgiving, what you're going to do is start to remind yourself of the gospel. Don't start your day by praying the list of ten things, again, that you need God to do for you. 
Start your day by praying the list of 10 things that he has already done for you. Be amazed with what he's done. Be amazed as you start your day aware, this is scandalous grace, Lord, that you would choose me and you you died for me. You came after me. Lord, I thank you that whatever I do today, the truth is I'm forgiven. Lord, that, that compels me to want to live for you. Lord, this is scandalous. Start your day by confining yourself to giving thanks to God for the gospel and the effects in your life. Number 11, wherever possible, seize your commute for the gospel. And Sydney, this is a message for you in particular. Seize your commute for the gospel. On Wednesday this past week, I had a moment of a commute. I was leaving North Ride at 5.30 p.m. When I returned home at about 7.15, I felt utterly sick. It took an hour and 45 minutes to get from North Ride to Hornsby, and I thought, I, I couldn't believe it. The first words to my wife as I got in was, A, I'm never doing that again. And B, these poor souls of sovereign grace, babe, they must do this every each day. It's surprising. If you're in my life group, it's a surprise that any of you come. It is, because I just think it's incredible that with that length of commute, you can still function in the evenings. It's just remarkable to me. Those commutes are long, they are lengthy, they are tiring. And so here is my specific exhortation for you. Seize your commute for the gospel. You are sitting in your car a long time. For some of you, two hours a day plus. That's 10 hours a week. I want to encourage you, seize that moment for the gospel. Sometimes we can think we're so busy we haven't got time. I've just given you 10 hours a week. That's a lot of time. We can do a lot of things in 10 hours. So seize it for the gospel. Don't just spend your time looking out the window, listening to the radio, moaning at the car in front. But use that time to memorize the scripture like we've talked about. Use that time to make gospel-centered songs, the soundtrack of your life. Buy those CDs, put them in, blast them out, fill yourselves with truth. Utilize that time by praying, by praying to God for what he's done in the gospel. Seize that commute. Invest that time for the glory of the Lord. Wouldn't it be good if you're driving along and instead of moaning at the car in front, you're actually starting to receive in that moment the joy of knowing what it is to have the sparks of the gospel start to fall on you, even as you're driving to work? That'll work. Do that. Number 12, and finally, Regularly review your conversion testimony and never grow familiar with the grace you've experienced. Regularly review it and never grow familiar with it. So I think many people today want to forget their past. They're ashamed of their past. So they want to move on from their past. But for Christians, I want to encourage you, I think one of the best ways we can draw near to the cross is by remembering our past and by remembering then what Jesus Christ has done for us in light of who we really are, in light of the people that we actually are, to remember who we were, to remember the realities of our plight outside of God's saving grace. And to stand then in amazement as we remember then what he's done for us, how he's taken us, people who were against him as orphans, and made us his children, saving us by his abounding grace. And folks, I want to encourage you, as you review that, I want to encourage you that every conversion testimony in this room is an absolute miracle of God's grace. It is. See, I grew up as a church kid. 
And I think the temptation and tendency then is to think that everybody else has these amazing stories. And mine isn't that special. So That is so not true. Your testimony is a miracle of God's grace. When you got saved, whether you were 6 or 66, whether it was in what you perceived to be a dramatic testimony or a plain testimony, I want to encourage you, it is absolutely miraculous. Because whether you were 6 or 66, you were running away from God. You did not care about God. You did not want to be with God. You were uninterested in God. And yet at the right time, God opened your eyes to him. He saved you by His grace. He gave you the gift of faith and you responded then in effectual calling by putting your faith in Him at which point you were forgiven of your sin, adopted into the family of God, reconciled, redeemed, assured that heaven is your home. You didn't deserve it whether you were 6 or 66. It's a miracle. It is an absolute miracle of His incredible grace. So folks, I want to encourage you, whatever your circumstance, whatever your age when you became a Christian, whatever your perception is of your story, it is a miracle. And so regularly review it, write it out, rehearse it, tell it. And as you do so, allow the writing out and the retelling of it to be theologically informed. See, I I all too often hear people's testimonies and they say, well, I just grew up in a Christian home and so I've sort of always been saved, really. That's not true. No. There was a season in your life where you were an enemy of God and an orphan. Did God do anything to you in that moment? Well, I don't know. I think I went to Sunday school and I put my hand up and I I, I love Jesus. Okay, that's amazing grace. He opened your eyes. At that point, he, he opened your eyes. And he adopted you and forgave you and assured you that heaven is your home. This is Your testimony is amazing. So allow your testimony to be informed by theology. And the theological truth is, you weren't always a Christian. You didn't just grow up in a home and then sort of went along and, oh, yeah, I'm in. No. You were an enemy of God. And so if you sit here amazed by God's grace and are a Christian, he has done a transforming work in your life, just the same as he did to the Apostle Paul. And so I want to hear your testimony just as I want to hear the Apostle Paul's because they're all miracles. And when we review them like that individually, you'll start to be amazed. That is me. I was once lost, but now I am found. I was an enemy of God, but now I'm a child of the King. Friends, the gospel truly is an incredible source of deep and irrevocable joy. But you have to get near enough to it to allow the sparks of the gospel to fall on your lives. You have to get close enough. And so I want to encourage you, live then the gospel-centered life. Don't just take all these things. Please don't take all these things. Now and rack them all up as spinning plates, all these things I've got to do. No, that's not what I'm saying. These are recommendations for your life. But I do want to encourage you, pick one or two or most three and start to consider how are you then going to live the gospel-centered life? How are you going to allow the gospel to inform your daily endeavors? How are you going to allow the gospel, the sparks of the cross, to fall on your life? I want to encourage you, pick some of these things. And here's what you can anticipate. You can anticipate as you apply these, deep and irrevocable joy. As you put to death legalism, as you move aside condemnation, as you start to live based on truth and not your subjective feelings, you will start to experience deep and irrevocable joy.
That's my prayer for you. More importantly, that's the Savior's desire for you. And so that's what we preach. Let's pray. In fact, why don't you stand with me just as I close in prayer. Well, Lord, as we, as we close this service in prayer, Lord, I do pray for each and every one of us in the room. Lord, the gospel truly is incredible and has a transforming effect on our life that when seen correctly should provoke incredible, deep and irrevocable joy in our lives. And Lord, I pray for us then. Lord, would you help us to keep the main thing the main thing? Lord, as a local church, would you help us? Would you give me grace to ensure that we never fumble the gospel? And would you help us to ensure that we never move on from the gospel? Lord, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. And so I ask you, would you give us grace so that the main thing keeps us? Father, for us then as individuals, Lord, would you help these things to be burnt into our lives so that condemnation and subjectivism and legalism, which we're all tempted through each and every day, would they become a thing of the past? Instead, would our eyes be filled with the glories of Calvary? And would that inform our souls? And would joy, profound, God-given joy, then be our theme? In Jesus' name, amen.